This podcast number 804 with Robert Hall is brought to you by Stan Cox, author of a new book entitled The Green New Deal and Beyond, Ending the Climate Emergency While We Still Can. Please listen to podcast number 803 where Stan and Greg had a very informative discussion about climate energy, climate change, solar and wind panels, and fossil fuels. They talk about the green, the New Deal, and the beyond part of the book, which is essentially a vision to get out of Great Recession by creating jobs, building up renewable energy, and green infrastructure as economic stimulus. If you want to learn more about Stan Cox and his new book, The Green New Deal and Beyond, please go to www.citylights.com. That's C-I-T-Y-L-I-G-H-T-S dot com. And now for our featured podcast, please listen to Greg's interesting interview with Robert Hall about his book, This Land of Strangers, The Relationship Crisis That Imperils Home, Work, Politics, and Faith. Happy listening. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voice and the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Robert, as I do all the time, I thank the listeners. Um, it's been an amazing ride, uh, 13 and a half years of doing podcasts, uh, over 800 podcasts now with distinguished authors like yourself. Uh, today, joining us from Dallas, Texas, is Robert Hall. And his book is This Land of Strangers. Uh, the relationship crisis that imperils home, work, politics, and faith. Good day to you, Robert. How are you? I'm good, and it's good to be with you, Greg. Thanks. It's good to be with you. And I was introduced to Robert because he did a talk on Path North through Doug Hall. And many of you uh, went to not only watch Doug's video that we created, but also bought his book as well. And I'm going to be recommending uh, Robert's book as much as I recommended uh, Doug's book because I noticed many of you picked up the book. So thank you all for not only supporting our authors, uh, but supporting them and getting their message out there. Uh, One of the best ways to do it, you and I even talked about that, is uh, because in relationships, it's really about um, kind of these silent things where people are moving around and talking not only about books, but it's real important. But I'm going to let our listeners know a little bit about you. He's a noted author, consultant, speaker on relationships, a co-founder and CEO of International CRM, and that stands for Contact Relationship Management for some people who don't know what that is, consulting software company. He was a finalist of Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Southwest. His first book, The Street Corner Strategy, For Winning Local Markets, a business bestseller helped inspire the CRM movement. For the past decade, he has uh, mentored inner-city homeless families and authored more than 150 published articles on relationship. His works appeared in New York Times, Forbes, Huffington Post, and the CEO magazine. And again, for all of you, here is the book. We're going to put a link to Amazon so that you can go pick this up. Um, It's not a real heavy read but it does have a lot of statistics in it because Robert makes his point uh, that way about really where are things trending here with relationships. And I think in this era of COVID, uh, Robert, you probably couldn't have a better time for a book like this to actually take more traction and people take more interest in it. Um, And I think for most of our listeners, they'd agree that the premise that our relationships are strained and we have fewer of them I don't think anybody out there is going to disagree with that. I think they're going to say this right now, this time with COVID, um, it's, it's tough. Um, we're, we're challenged by even what you and I are doing here. How do you build a relationship with somebody uh, who you haven't met and you're trying to Zoom call with them and you really want to be in person at a coffee shop and just hang out with them and, and have a good time? Why did you write the book and what is causing this hyper-accelerated strain on relationships in your estimation? Well, again, thanks for having me, Greg. And I I think there's two things when I look to my motivation for the book. Uh, My first is I'm a recovering CEO for over 20 years. I 
went through co-founding, startup, rapid growth, and eventually in the process of taking a company public when we were acquired by a public company. And the takeaway from all that experience is, is I know just how crucial relationships are and how hard uh, leadership is and how hard leadership is with diverse and, and demanding relationships. So that experience, particularly in the CRM world, uh, has really uh, further motivated me to look at relationships. But the second thing is after I sold my company, I spent over a decade uh, working with inner city homeless families. And my big takeaway there is that one of the things I discovered that most often the tripwire for someone becoming homeless is not when they lose their last dollar, but when they use up their last relationship. So those two sets of experiences uh, helped me come to kind of the overarching conclusion, which is our relationships are our most valuable and value-creating possession that we have. They are both the greatest source of gain that we have, joy, happiness, all that, and often the greatest source of pain. So with that in mind, what I started on a journey to say, well, we've looked at relationships uh, often uh, in silos. People looked at them in home or work relationships or politics or faith. And I was really interested in the cumulative and compounding effect, effect of broken relationships across homework, politics, and faith. And so uh, that's kind of uh, how I came at it. And obviously today, as you mentioned, we have two key uh, almost inflection points simultaneously around relationships. And number one is around COVID-19. And the big issue there is isolation. We'd already heard of deaths of despair and all of that. We have a real challenge uh, today with with isolation. And then the second one is the George Floyd killing, which deals with a separate kind of disconnect, which is division and how uh, polarized we are. So in the former, we're too isolated. And in the latter, we struggle to be uh, together. So uh, when we look at the causes, I'm sure we'll talk about it further. I talk about four in the book. I would highlight two. One is our incredible focus on self. Talk about that probably a little later. And then the second is technology. I ran a software firm for over 20 years, but how technology has altered relationships in some very constructive ways and some very destructive ways. So those are the two things I think that have most set the stage for what I would now call a relationship pandemic uh, that we are experiencing today. I think that the biggest challenge people have is is wanting to make a heartfelt connection with somebody. Um, you know, when people say, I know uh, Mark Victor Hansen, Chicken Soup for the Soul guy, used to run around all the time. I knew Mark when he drove around in Volkswagen and had nothing. And literally, he used to hug people. That was his big deal, right? Was, hey, come up and give me a hug. And he was all about yeses, yes, yes, yes. But my point was, that physical contact of compassionate, um, being able, heartfelt compassion to actually be able to touch, hold somebody or whatever is, is very isolating today. You can't get, you're not getting that, right? Um, people pass you on the street and they're six feet this way and six feet that way. And you feel like you got the plague and, you know, wh- whatever it is that you're doing, you're going into the grocery stores with the masks and, you know, all this stuff. And I know California and Texas, as we speak right now, are dealing with, you know, excessive amounts of this. Uh, Mark Benoff was on this morning saying that if everybody wore a mask for three straight weeks consecutively, you know, we would, there's your Salesforce competition on CRM. Yeah. We'd yeah. get rid of this, right? Um, but it, it, it is an issue. And, and I get that. And I understand that we have to be sensitive of. But at the same time, I always wonder, how many people are breaking their own hearts as a result of not being able to make that connection? Um, you know, and when we look at that, I mean, I know people are being admitted uh, into hospitals on a regular basis. And I was listening to a doctor from Midland, Texas, and he says, I'm teach, and I'm actually uh, treating people with uh, inhaled steroids and antibiotics. And I haven't lost one patient. I haven't lost one patient on this treatment. And I, I look at this and I say, wow, what's going on here? Um, and you tell a great story in your book 
about this trip to South Africa and the decline in the population of the elephants, of which my wife and I give money to uh, the the elephant uh, funds. Um, she's really big into that from the poaching, right? And as well as the stress on the elephant families, right? Because the elephants are really, you know, they're they're communal. They're very, they're very communal. Relational. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell the story and the correlation to our family decline in relationship to our own relationships? Because I, I love the story. I thought it was great. Yeah. Well, uh, it was a number of years ago, but uh, before I sold my company, uh, we had offices around the world and we had a, an office in Johannesburg, South Africa. And, and so we had a number of projects going on and I was invited to come in by one of our clients to speak to uh, the, the CEO and his team. And so we were about three hours outside of Johannesburg out on this wonderful, huge game preserve and uh, did a presentation using PowerPoint with a battery generator and afterwards, we had a bribe, which is a barbecue. And that night then, he, he asked me and a couple other fellows to uh, take a night uh, kind of ride out and, and view the uh, African elephants. So we got in this open-covered vehicle, and we drove around, and we saw rhinos and hippos and hyenas. And it was just terrific. And about 11 o'clock that night, we were coming back, and the CEO lamented. He said, you know... Uh, we didn't get to show you any elephants. He said, we, we had had elephants here. And he said, in fact, I went out in the market and I, I couldn't buy them in familial groups. So I bought individuals and I brought them together. And he said, um, eventually the young bulls just went rogue and tore things up so badly that we had to sell them. We had to get rid of them. It was just too destructive. And he went on to say that uh, it seemed that because the family ties were not there with bulls and mothers and uncles and aunts and all of that, uh, that as a result of that, the the elephant culture was very destructive and kind of fell apart. So at the time, I thought to myself, well, that's, that's interesting. I, I, I can see some of those parallels in our own society. So a couple of years later, I happened to come across an article in the New York Times by a guy named Charles Sievert. And, and he was explaining that in South Africa, they had this problem that had emerged and they were finding all these dead rhinos out on the game preserves and, and in places where animals ran wild and they couldn't figure it out. And so they put up cameras and what they noticed is these dead rhinos had puncture wounds. Long story short, when they got the cameras out and so forth, they saw that elephants were attacking and killing and even raping rhinos. And then no one in the history of of Africa had ever heard anything uh, like it. And so he went on to then talk about what the analysis and research found. And, and you know, what they found was decades of poaching and culling and, and basically habitat loss had, had re- basically disrupted the, the web of financial and social uh, or, or uh, familial and family relationships with young elephants that were traditionally raised in the wild. And um, in the established herds, the way they were typically governed now was changed because uh, they were witnessing what he called nothing less than a relational collapse of elephant culture. In fact, the article was entitled An Elephant Crack Up. And he went on to say that the number of older uh, female caregivers and older bulls had fallen dramatically in those locations, sometimes to zero in the calves were born and raised by younger and often inexperienced mothers. Orphans uh, witnessed the poaching, the killing of, of their parents and elders. And they actually found those young uh, elephants exhibited behavior associated with PTSD. Uh, they had yeah. abnormal startle response. Uh, they had unpredictable and asocial behavior, inattentive mothering, and hyperaggressiveness. And... Um, Interesting, uh, the good news is when they figured all of that out, they were able to bring in some older uh, mother and bull elephants uh, elephants into those herds, and it stabilized. So the point was that the disruption that occurred in in that culture dramatically changed and made much more aggressive the behavior Behavior. of those those elephants. Well, obviously, 
what are the parallels to our lives today? Uh, you know, yeah. just so, some of the ones we're very familiar with. In fact, uh, in my book, I talk about in the past in the past fifty years what I call the the rule of fifty, and that is in the past fifty years now uh, about fifty percent of marriages end the divorce. Right. Uh, the marriage overall is down about 50% and with a dramatic increase, the number of people living alone more than double and starting in 2012 kids over 50% of the kids born in this country to mothers under 30 are born into single parent households. Mm -hmm. And those kids are five times as likely to experience poverty as are those who do not have those circumstances. So, the disruption in the family of the elephants is similar to the disruption in the family and home. And, and unfortunately it doesn't end there. Uh, the American sociological review, many people are familiar with the study on friends that we've had in the last 20 years. When you talk about close go-to friends, friends, you know, that you go to in a crisis, uh, we've seen uh, a drop of one third, the number of close go-to friends. Yeah, and they didn't have ago. they didn't have many before then. So now it's down to like two, right? Yeah, it, like exactly. <laughs> and and twenty years ago, the the mode the most frequent answer was three, and today the most frequent answer is zero. The number of people with wow. zero close friends uh, has tripled. And then wow. you look at communities, and same thing. So you look at home where there's family, and then you look at friends, and then you look at community. Finally, and and in community. Uh, we all seen the numbers, 45,000 suicides this last year, um, uh, deaths to OD on drugs, over 70,000 is now the number one cause of death for those under 50. And what Raj Chetty at Harvard and others have discovered is... What about, this- what about incarceration? I mean, I think, you know, you know, when you look at, they claim if we could get, you know, even 50% of the guys out of incarceration... And much of that has been due to very poor, poor family relationships, right? I mean, let's it's face very, it. You yeah, know, it's, very poor family relationships and very poor community relationships. And no fathers. I mean, and that's no why you're working with the homeless, right? It, and exactly. Maybe, yeah. No fathers. And, and what we know, if you look at the George Floyd incident recently, mm-hmm. we all know that gun violence and killings in this country is 20 or 30 times that in other developed countries. But, for example, African-American uh, males are seven times as likely to experience homicide as, as white. And so it has destruction, it has violence and death, and it has racial uh, overturns. Over- and I think I read recently somewhere, Robert, that the actual um, uh, homicide rate amongst blacks to blacks was literally like 95%. In other words, yeah. The, yeah. if if they are killing, they're, they're basically blacks are killing blacks, not yeah. as many whites killing blacks. And I'm yeah. hopefully making a positive statement here. I'm not trying to be politically wrong or incorrect, but the reality is, is that just that homicide rate within um, blacks themselves is so high. Um, yeah. Is there any reason why that is other than the drugs or or well, in, in my view, um, there's several things, obviously, that relate. Clearly, poverty is one. Clearly, unstable and, and disruptive and crime-ridden communities. If you come up in that, it's very much harder to get away from that. Uh, and, and so, to me, the, you know, we talk about a relational pandemic, um, if you look at poverty, relational poverty, actually, in my opinion, is the biggest driver of economic poverty. And and they feed on each other. And so money's a big part of the problem, but relationship broken relationships uh, are, are a huge part of, of the problem. And so breaking that cycle, uh, you're probably familiar, Bill Galston, who is a former assistant under President Clinton, uh, has a very interesting statistic I, I cited in the book, and that is that if you complete high school, right. and if you marry before you have a child, and if you're over 20 and married when you have that child, the chances of you experiencing poverty are 8%. Wow. 
But if you don't do any of those, the chances are 79%. Wow. So the linkage of, and, and by the way, what we know is in 17 of the largest 50 schools in this country, in 17 of those, they're graduating 50% or less of entry-level freshmen four years later. So schools and community and all of that work together, and it's not an easy issue to solve. And clearly, the, the issues around police and, and inappropriate policing uh, is a factor in all that, but it's very large and complicated. Well, now, so you say that in the book that you speak about the fact that the decline in relationships is measured in by the increase in violence in society. Yeah. Um, we just talked about violence per se, violence amongst blacks against blacks, whites against blacks, whites against yeah. whites. Yeah. Um, what is happening that needs to be done to curb this trend or what, what, I mean, with relation to uh, the relationships, because, you know, when I look at violence and anger, I see a lack of love because yeah. usually it plays out just the other side. Right. Yeah. So if a, right. if a child is not being loved, right. Um, in in a relationship through the parents, through other siblings, through whatever's happening, um, frequently this plays out in a violent role, unless they take the high road. Now, some many take the high road and choose not to go that way, but what, what can be done? You know, and when we talk about uh, privilege, I think the privilege of family is is a really is a really powerful one. And mm-hmm. to your point earlier, uh, one of the things a number of people have researched and, and talked about is that for particularly a, a male, a, a young boy who does not have a father, right. a gang is a very attractive place to have authority and to express manliness and manhood and so forth. And so. That is an absence of a relationship replaced by a very destructive and dysfunctional relationship that puts a person on a path. We all know once a person has a criminal record, for example, if, if, if that happens, I've worked extensively with families. And it is just, unless you've worked in that area, it's just unbelievable how hard it is to get out of of that track. Well, the systems, the systems, unless they've changed, I I know in the Midwest, you live in Texas. um, We have maybe a little bit more liberal systems here in California, again, state by state by state. Um, We're doing things to try and, um, and I'm sure Texas is too, to prevent incarceration. Um, It's the two strike law, the three strike law, that kind of thing that are happening. Now, yeah, and you know, changing for bail and bonds and all that. Yeah, exactly. Now, you obviously were a businessman. You built a big business, you sold it off, and it was around relationship management. But right. business in relationships, as you state, you state that the world of work and business at its core is a series of relationships. You got the stakeholders, the customers, employees, the management, and the shareholders. How is it that relation, this relationship issue affecting businesses at its core? Because I do see this happening inside businesses as well. Um, you know, look, when businesses get big enough, even when they're small, we have relationship issues. Let's make it. A lot of times it is in smaller businesses that you have more, more problems, right? Um, what, what's going on there in your estimation about communications? that's breaking down, that's preventing people from having uh, what I would say heartfelt discussions, talks about what's going on, telling my manager, hey, I I really didn't like the way that you dealt with me, uh, no matter how the review comes out, because look, it's all, people are getting reviews and they're worried about what the reviews are going to be, right? Exactly. So how would you address that relationship issue? Well, the, the overall thing that I call for in the book is what I call relational leadership, a form of leadership designed to make for more productive relationships. And why is that important? Well, the Gallup research that came out not too long ago, 70% of workers in this country self-report they are not engaged at work. 18% say they're actively disengaged. Like they they go to work with a to-do list to make sure they don't accidentally get engaged. Why does that matter? Engaged workers give 57% more effort and they're 87% less likely uh, to resign. So 
what I think has happened, uh, clearly the business roundtable came out with the shift from our only aim is the shareholder to stakeholder is that a number of workers in large and other companies feel like that stakeholders have not been treated fairly, that mm-hmm. the, the people at the top have gotten too much. And as a result of that, they have responded with disengagement. Just one study I would cite. Deloitte did a, a study uh, around the world, 52 regions around the world. And in each region, without exception, people reported the gap between what I need from my leader and what I'm getting has increased. So when we look at leadership these days, we find that it's a challenge. Only 50% of workers in this country would recommend their place of work to a friend. And 35% of people say they would be willing to forgo a significant pay raise in order to get rid of their boss. So the, the, now the question you ask is have leaders become stupid overnight or something else going on? And my belief is something else is going on. And that's something else in a world where uh, there's a lot of information uh, where there's a lot of sharing of information that stakeholders out there in companies are feeling like, particularly at the bottom, that while the corporation has done well and the shareholders done well, they have not done well. And there's a revolt. I've written a couple of articles on my website about the stakeholder revolt. And I think we're going to continue to see so it's demand from stakeholders. You're saying it's disparity in income or uh, yeah. this, this income and, and influence. For example, right. uh, I saw a sign the other day. Uh, it, was, it was great. It was talking about um, after the George Floyd and it said, uh, basically it was criticizing. It said the criticism was that looters had gone in and, and taken uh, away things from, from businesses and stripped it out without uh, uh, forming a private equity firm behind. <laughs> so the idea is that there is a rebellion out there that says stakeholders who may lose their job if private equity comes in, uh, may lose their job if outsourcing occurs, a whole series of things. And they're saying we need more influence over the, as stakeholders, the things that affect our lives. And I think we're going to continue to see a demand for relational leadership to, to deal with that. I would say you're absolutely correct with that. And it, it certainly is one of those things that um, with inside companies, uh, you, you it, I think it's the quiet disease um, yeah. that's, that's there because they're not being heard. I think if people yeah. were being heard um, and people were taking some action on them being heard, I don't yeah. think they listen enough. And they also have a fear about expressing it. Um, well, and so that, I mean, I know you, you remember this story. Uh, this is, this is absolutely true. Um, inside hospitals, when people would die, the nurses frequently who maybe attended to them or the doctors, they didn't want to tattletale on one another if there was a mistake, right? Yeah. And it took years and years and years for people like, um, I'm not going to say the Mayo Clinic, but Cleveland Clinic actually did a ton of work on this. For yeah. actually people to be able to have an environment, meaning an opportunity to be included and hear their voice and say, hey, we really know why this person died because they wanted to cover up what maybe was going on. And so now that whole thing got reformed. Does that you remember that? I, I, I very much do. And so what what happens today because things happen so rapidly is the revolt uh, now, I think, has accelerated. And, and just for business, including healthcare, like hospitals, 47% of the people in this country say that capitalism has done more harm than good. Mm-hmm. If we don't get better at relational leadership, engaging stakeholders and letting them be a part of what's going on, we're going to find that our system is going to be further under attack. So, the bad news is this is going to make some leaders really uncomfortable and there's going to be some discomfort in the revolt. The good news is it is through the change that that pressure hopefully uh, creates uh, that gives us a shot at fixing things. Well, let's talk about that because we're in uh, – look, when you become a relational leader, okay, uh, you're authentic, you're compassionate, 
your understanding. Uh, you know how to write, you know how to ask Socratic questions. You know a lot of things about empathy um, and understanding. And, you know, and kind of in, I'm going to say the olden days, it wasn't that long ago. Uh, leaders, as we saw, weren't supposed to have all of those character traits, right? So we're going through a revolution in leadership, right? And in your chapter on a house divided against itself, a state of dysfunction, you state that the political divide and relationship divide is costing the country dearly. Um, You know, we can talk about some of the costs. We don't really need to point fingers, but we can talk about it. We know that we have an administration, which is currently right now creating divide. And for some will say, Hey, we needed this. We needed the shakeup, right? There's there's a reason for this occurring uh, to have a current president like Trump in office to shake stuff up. No matter what your point is, there's a cost, okay? And I guess we either have to get to the other side of the cost to really understand, meaning, hey, if we're going to shake up our our uh, our economic structure. We're going to stake up our our school structure. We're going to shake up the political structure. We're going to stake up all of these structures and then rebuild them. My question would be: Is the costs and how do you propose we work to repair the partnership divide that's occurred? Because right now the divide, Robert, is it, it almost seems insurmountable. I know it's not. But it seems that way. It, it, it does seem like it. And, and you look at it just for example. You mentioned earlier three weeks wearing a mask. Uh, COVID-19 is a medical issue, and we've allowed it to become a political issue so that wearing a mask or not ma- wearing a mask has now become a signaling device as to which tribe you're in. Mm-hmm. There, That is incredibly unfortunate so that uh, it would have been hard to imagine three years ago or five years of it, that something like COVID-19 would come along and we would get divided over something as simple uh, as a mask. Uh, you know, Michael Porter at Harvard says, uh, basically our political divide is our greatest threat to economic competitiveness. And, and we know how petty it gets. Uh, you've seen this 45% of Democrats and 35% of Republicans say uh, basically that they would be unhappy if their child married someone in the other party. In 1965% said that was the case. So something has happened to cause us to exaggerate our differences, join into tribes and throw stones at each other. And so a- as a result of that, um, we, in your we humble have... opinion, what has happened? Because, not taking COVID out of the question, because I was yeah. actually in my own neighborhood last night. I I saw two neighbors arguing over the mask and the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. And one, yeah. there was two women. And one, yeah. we were walking our dog, and one woman said to the other woman, she said, um, hey, you know, this is crazy. This is a, it's not important. You don't need to wear the mask. And she's way 20 feet away from her. Yeah. And the other woman says, and why can the governor of the state of California a demand to all these businesses to stop running like he did yesterday. No more yeah. gyms again, no more hair salons, yeah. no more whatever. And they started fighting over the the power of the governor to be able to do that. And the one woman said, we're in an effing pandemic, right? Yeah. Put your mask on, right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's amazing how people can get so divided over this. There's a tremendous divide here right now over how to manage this. Well, and in, in fact, a number of people say it's the new religion. When I was young, <laughs> we used to talk about people get in, getting into fights over religion. Well, that same religious fervor now has has translated into our politics. And uh, so uh, it's interesting. Uh, one of the best things I've heard about several years ago, Peter Pace was the head of Joint Chief of Staff during the Iraq war and early on he was over there and he came back and reported and he said, you know, this is fairly simple. They're talking about sectarian violence between groups, neighbors and tribes that live Sunni and Shia together. And, and his basic advice, he said, we'll get this resolved when we decide uh, that we love our children more than we hate our neighbors. And to me, what's happened right now is we've allowed ourselves uh through a 
horrible dysfunction in relationship to love what we hate more than we love what we love. And it simply means we have become seduced by the hatred that goes on. And so um, I recently did a piece on uh, the new religion, destructive uh, escalation. It's how escalation works. And, and so we've allowed uh, ourselves, rather than to focus on what unites us, is right. to become passionate about what divides us. And I think all, a lot of people feel very injured, and it's a cycle. Because once you throw a stone at someone and they throw it back and you each have a bloody nose, now it's really hard to get together. Well, and it's a separatist mindset. It's a separatist mindset. I'm right. You're wrong. Right. And they've always said they've always said in relationships, if you know, if you've ever had any marital issues, which and I've been married 42 years, you're not going to be married that long without having some issues. Do you want to be right or do you want to be in love? So that should be the question, yeah. you know, to everybody out there. If that person was your wife, yeah. would you, would you, do you want to be right? Are you going to be so righteous to stand on that? And it, this brings us to this next question. Religious wars and no peace. You, you look at the Gaza Strip. You look at things that have gone on in Jerusalem. Yeah. It's like it's been, it seems like it's been here since the beginning of time, right? Yeah. I, uh, honestly, uh, I sometimes say religion has done more to divide people than it has to yeah. unite people. Okay. Now COVID is almost the same way, right? It's yeah. doing more yeah. to divide. It's often said that religion uh, is, is not uniting. So if our religious beliefs divide us, what can we do to unite our world and brotherhood and compassion in your estimation? Because this is at the core of your book at the core, yeah. core, core, if you really distill this down, right, we're talking about what the Dami, Dalai Lama would say is, ah, can't we just all get along? <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, it's interesting. Anne Lamont has, has a great quote. She says, you know, you can assume, you can safely assume you created God in your own image when it turns out God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> and, and so it's interesting. Religion or belief or spirituality we would hope would be a thing that brings us together when we're divided. Yeah. What we've allowed to happen is that for faith and belief and even spirituality uh, to become sources of, of division. And uh, one of the things that's really unfortunate is if you look at, um, you know, Robert Putnam in Bowling Alone says 50% of volunteering and associational interaction occurs around houses of worship or religious type groups. So one of the things that we've lost in all of this by becoming so divided is the community aspect of faith has changed. Smaller tribal groups who then, uh, and, and that's not new, but, but maybe technology has allowed us to become um, more transparent in a way that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, uh, Head of software development, my company had a saying, he says, if you give a fool a faster tool, what you get is a faster fool. Mm-hmm. We've all become faster fools, and technology allows us to blurt out things that maybe we wouldn't have before. But the other thing that's happened, you know, if you look at the world of faith, uh, I'm a Christian, and in, in the Christian faith, the big question was, what's the big commandment? And it was love God and love your neighbor. And then all law and all the other stuff hangs on this and we've got it backward we say i love the law and to heck with the relationships and so you know love your god love your neighbor even the samaritans even those you don't like at all and to me we've got to recapture that in whatever belief system we have whether it is a traditional one or somehow we have to have something bigger than we are to hang on to that somehow helps us be transcended well, if you're a seeker, you're saying find God, find I, I, something that's, right. that's greater than you. Because look, when greater you than eat, you, the reason yeah. those arguments start infrequently, and the reason that Trump blurts out some things he wishes he afterwards maybe didn't wish he didn't say was the ego, right? Yeah, and exactly. and I've been told this many times, and you probably heard this: ego is edging God out. Edging God out, right? Yeah. And and you know you when you allow this oneness separateness to actually speak 
it doesn't speak from a we, it speaks from a, a me. And, yeah. and you're treading on my territory over here. So let's talk about these four components that build relationship attachment um, yeah. and why they're so important to healing relationships. Because as much as the book is about strangers, you are speaking about, hey, what is relationship attachment and how can we heal these relationships? And, and when we look at relationship and how it helps us become attached, there's four things that, that I, I think are really important. Number one uh, is relationship is ongoing, and there's some sense of obligation. We give ourselves to others. It's interesting. At the root of the word relationship, that word uh, really comes from to tolerate or to bear. So relationship means to bear. Uh, it's not what's just in it for me. It's to bear with someone else, and it's interesting Over time means patience. And if you look at the word patience, at the root of that is a Latin word for suffering. So to bear suffering over time with someone else, it's ongoing. There's that bearing or obligation. And then the second one is relationship. Can I insert insert something? Yeah. yeah. A long time ago, Buddha said, he said, it doesn't matter what, what philosophy you are. He said there is suffering and then there's the end of suffering. And the end of suffering only comes from you making a mind shift about how you see the relationship. So we're all going to have suffering, right? And you're saying going into a relationship. I love how you put that. Actually, that was just right on. You're in a relationship because you're going to share suffering, right? And you're going to help each other remove the suffering with love. Exactly. Right. And and me and you become something new, us. Right. It creates a new thing. Right. And, and so, uh, and, like and, you know, the, the second part of that is there is the, that relationship enables give and take. Uh, not only do we take care of each other, but give and take, we disagree on things. And it, it's, it's interesting to me uh, when you look at it, uh, Robert Putnam talks about two things that relationship requires. And one is lubricant. That is, we're different. We have friction when we're together. So relationship creates lubricant that helps us move around in our differences. He calls that bridging. How do we deal with others who are very different? Bridging. And then the second point, paradoxically, is glue. And glue actually creates friction to hold us together, like-minded in our family, in our clubs, and so forth. And he calls that bonding. And it seems these days, We've got more glue bonded into our tribes in some areas than we have lubricant to deal with those that are are different. So their relationship is both, uh, I call it petty glue. It's the, our, uh, it's the, the thing that helps us hold together even when we, we don't like each other. Our petty lubricant, it helps us when we're in friction. Yeah. And then the, the third one is serving and being served. And, you know, it's an interesting piece of research. Um, it was done in, I believe, University of Washington. Siblings often tutor their younger brothers or sisters. And the research shows that the person who gains the most out of tutoring in those circumstances is the older child that tutors. So what we know about serving others is giving up ourselves to others is that when we give ourselves away to others that and with no expectation of return that we are served, uh, and so, you know, we kind of servant means give up your rights. I, I, I find the word integrity really interesting. We talk about integrity as honesty, and it is, but, but integrity means to keep all the parties whole. So in the give and take and the back and forth and in the serving, it is how do we keep all the, you know, the parties whole. And, and, uh, and then finally, grace and accountability. So there's ongoing obligation, there's enabling give and take, there's serving and being served, and then grace and accountability. And why do we need grace and accountability? Because we as humans fail to live up to our deal, our ideals of relationship. So grace gives us, um, you know, kind of oxygen when we run out of relational breath. And accountability is, a, is just the other side of that, of holding up a mirror sometime and helping us do better, you know, uh, I think Anne Lamont says, uh, God loves you just the way you are, but way too much to let you stay that way. So the grace is love you way you are, 
and accountability is, uh, and so much not to allow you to stay that way. And so attachment, relationship creates attachment in that messy, uneven, difficult set of circumstances called relationship. Well, look, Robert, you have been helping people with, uh, for years with your software company. And I know when you do CRM software, uh, look, I'm on several platforms and I always wonder, you know, because the world we live in today, you mentioned at the beginning of this thing was technology was out there and it's, it is binding a lot more people together. Uh, I think in breadth, but I don't think in depth. I think the depth of the relationships, which is very discouraging, has uh, diminished uh, yes. tremendously yeah. as a result yeah. of it um, yeah. because it became an economic thing. Okay, yeah. I have a database and I put thousands of people in it and then I email blast them and I'm going to sell them something and whatever. And I get that. That's where you had mentioned capitalism has done. Right. There was a belief about capitalism. Yeah. Um, what I'd like you to do in summing up the interview here is if you were to leave the listeners with three things uh, that they could do to positively affect the relationships in their lives and the lives of others, right? So we're not right. just talking about them. We're talking about yeah. what they might say to somebody else, okay? Yeah. What advice would you leave them with? Because I'm actually going to call you the relationship expert. You're not, you know, you're not like a, uh, the the sex therapist relationship. You're just talking about relationships, yeah. period, yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I think there's three things that for me are most important. And, and number one is to truly say my relationships are my number one most important thing. If you're a company, you say it's our most strategic asset. If it's a family or uh, someone you're, partnered with to say my relationships are more important than anything. And I would say, try this every day. The moment you wake up, you ask yourself if relationships or whichever group you're focused on are most important. As I think about the day before me, uh, where could I make a positive difference in at least one relationship today? So one relationship, one thing I'm going to do today that will support and reinforce my relationships. It's easy to say relationships are important, but to say it is the single most important thing is a commitment that then bears certain actions. So I'd start with that. And then the second thing to me is, is from time to time, once a week, from time to time, step back and in a company phraseology say what's my relationship scorecard if you want to just talk about it socially how am I doing with my key relationships and I'd have three questions as I think about my relationships whether it's family or church or business or social club or whatever where is I scan mentally my relationships where do I have a relationship that is at risk retention risk that I'm at risk of losing that relationship and what might I do about that? And as I think about my relationships, where do I have an opportunity to expand or grow a key relationship that would be really valuable, where I can make a difference, would be really good for all of us, and, and where would I do that? And then third, where should I add or attract a new or different relationship because I'm so narrow and homogeneous that I, that I'm, I need to expand my base, maybe from close ties to what we call loose ties. So, your scorecard and goals for what you're hoping to do with that thing that's number one, your relationships. And then the third thing is the things that are really important in our lives, we establish routines and habits for. And when you think about routines and habits for relationships, you'd say, who are those relationships in my life that are so crucial that I need a routine or I need a habit with them? I found a group of people I try to have lunch with once a month. Date night is a relationship thing we do with a spouse. One-on-one -on -one lunches with our kids is a relationship routine. And in the busy world, if we're not crowding, if we're not uh, really careful, we will crowd out the things that are really important because of the things that are merely urgent. And so 
What are your habits or routines for those relationships most important to you? And get those uh, books so that you habitually spend time, invest with what you've said is most important in your life. Those are great pieces of advice. And I'd add one thing for my listeners, and that is to be grateful for the relationships that you do have and that you've forged a strong bond with those people. Because um, if if Robert is correct, which he is, and you said, well, how many good people can, can you depend on? And it's now down to zero. <laughs> you You better try and move that notch up a couple and make an effort because he's actually asking you to take inventory. And so we have been on with Robert E. Hall. The book is This Land of Strangers. Uh, I would highly recommend you getting this book. We're going to put a link in there. You can go to his website at robertehall.com. Very easy to get there. And there what you're going to find is you're going to find about it, the books, there's some videos and contact. Uh, You can contact uh, Robert that way as well. And, you know, I think the discussion we had was extremely meaningful. I think for our listeners, too, um, whether you buy the book or not, I think the last bit of advice that Robert gave, which was to take an inventory and to be aware of what you're doing in relationships is probably the most important thing. And I'll leave with this. In this time of COVID, you know, it's, it's tough because you're having a challenge trying to do these coffee things he talked about and going to lunch and, and whatever you're doing. So my wife and I, <laughs> we went through a drive through the other day, which was a drive through of, of, believe it or not, vegetarian, vegan food. So we're, we're coming up to the thing and we hear the girl say, Oh, that car in front of you, they bought your meal. And so we were the next car. And the girl said, well, here's your price. And I said, uh, she bought your meal. I said, well, I'm going to buy the meal for the person behind me too. So I did that. You know, I, I charged it. There's little things you can do to brighten people's days. They may not know who's doing it, but the reality is, is that, you know, we just, we drove through that thing and we were like, wow, if everybody in that line was buying the other person's meal, Imagine how cool that would be. <laughs> it's a great example. And what an act of gratitude yeah. in being thankful for what I have. And I love your point about being thankful for the relationships I have that then provides energy right. for actions to build and grow the additional relationships in your network. Yeah. Well, Robert, it's been a pleasure having you on again for my listeners. Pick up this book. You're going to have a link. Go to Robert's website. Uh, contact Robert. I mean, right there, you can email him. He's he's uh, he'll take your questions. I'm sure he'd appreciate that. Uh, Robert, again, thanks for everything. Thanks for having a, a a great dialogue with me. I thought this was a really meaningful conversation and dialogue, even though we're two thousand miles away. <laughs> thanks so much, Greg. Great okay. being with you. <laughs>